welcome to episode 85 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest commentator, uh, General Michael Hayden, uh, who's currently a distinguished visiting professor at George Mason, uh, a retired Air Force four-star, and uh, most importantly, from my point of view, former director of both the National Security Agency and the CIA. Did anybody else ever do that? No, I'm, I'm the only one. Bill Studeman. He, he was deputy. director to deputy, but I'm the only one who's got the two jobs. Well, thank I, you very much for the invitation. Yes, I'm, I'm glad to ha- have you here. Uh, it, I, I used to tell people that, uh, uh, and this is still true, I'm the only person who's worked at uh, high levels in both DHS and NSA, and so I'm the child of a broken marriage. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that is nothing compared to the relationship between the CIA and NSA. So uh, 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 we're looking forward to your insights. Uh, uh, also here, uh, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, uh, and Alan Cohn, uh, Formerly head of strategy at DHS uh, and second in charge of DHS policy, now of counsel to Steptoe. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, as you just heard, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, uh, my partners are starting to look at me and saying, isn't it time you left? Well, how about the Cruz administration? That would look good. Um, uh, so we'll see about that. Uh, we ought to get started on the news uh, roundup. Uh, I thought the most interesting um, topic, or at least the one that's suddenly in the press, is uh, ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, whatever you want to call it, Islamic State, as a hacker of U.S. and Western uh, systems. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they said they were going to, and they've been trying apparently to hack uh, electric power systems. Uh, they did uh, successfully hack a uh, uh, probably a third-party contractor of some sort and obtain the names of a bunch of Western, uh, mainly U.S. Uh, officials, law enforcement, uh, military, and the like, uh, uh, and released it. Uh, I think. Um, uh, they, uh, it was a hacker named Farizi who released it to, uh, uh, ISIS Twitter, Twitter account, uh, uh, run by Junaid Hussein. Uh, that was in August. Uh, what's really interesting and, and what I haven't seen much comment on the press, maybe because it would redound to the credit of the U.S., uh, is just what a great job the U.S. government did in identifying and uh, bringing the hammer down on the people who did that. Uh, um, I loved the tweet. Uh, they have us on their list, says Hussein, and we have them on ours, too. Uh, a week after he released that tweet, uh, our list was clearly looking better than his because he was dead uh, thanks to a uh, uh, smart bomb. Uh, and uh, uh, two months later, uh, we caught the hacker, too. Uh, uh, so uh, I, I've said before that I think attribution is getting better. This is a really concrete example of uh, uh, how good attribution is getting. Uh, but, Alan, do you, uh, do you worry about the uh, – 
um, attacks on our power grid from ISIS? Well, I have to say in this instance, I'm not sure it's an example of the prowess, the, the Internet prowess, as much as it is just another example of organizations outsourcing this type of hacking to others. So Faridi was, was the head of a Kosovar uh, uh, yes. organization that, that engaged in, in, in hacking under the, the name of the Kosova Hackers Security Group. Um, and it was he, not the kind of the ISIL folks who broke into the, the third-party retailer database right. and, and, and crossed the names. And he was a 20-year-old kid who just wanted to continue his education, so he went to uh, Kuala Lumpur and got busted. Right. So I'm not sure it says as much about the the efficacy of, of ISIL attacks on the power grid as much as it is an interesting kind of network of... Right. I don't think they're any good. They're necessarily any good. And that seems to be what everybody is saying. They would like to be good but aren't. But, but there's, a, there's a trend line here, too, Stuart. You've got... You know, we've got nation states, criminal gangs, and then what I've called the disaffected. Uh, the disaffected largely been self-organized and getting mad about defending Julian Assange and the like. Right. But the new flavor for that third group has been the disaffected in the service of nation states or movements. So you've got this with ISIS. Yes. You've got the Syrian Electronic Army. Right. And you clearly have the same thing going on in Iran as well. So you've kind of got these these folks out there looking for a cause, and they're now attaching their star to these mid-range nation states or terrorist organizations. Yeah, you do the hack first, and then you figure out who it might serve. Uh, well, it's the joy of the hack. Exactly. But they're, they're looking for a purpose. And so the question is, does this really stretch you any further than doxing or, you know, other types of social media type events into something more. Well, doxing, you know, doxing is one thing. You get embarrassed by whatever your documents are. But when uh, uh, Daesh says, oh, by the way, you ought to kill these guys, uh, and you've got folks running around with guns who are self-radicalizing, while I don't think that's the most likely outcome, it's not an outcome you can ignore. I think that's true. And I think that, that uh, as the general said, this may be just the first of these kind of twofer indictments that we're going to see of CFAA violations leading to material support for terrorist organizations. Well, so congratulations to the Justice Department, to NSA, to the people who did this. It was that it was great work. Uh, and uh, um, my guess is uh, power grid attacks aren't in the cards now from ISIS. But, you know, frankly, five years ago, four years ago, you would have said uh, North Korea as a cyber power, give me a break, or even Iran. Uh, and so the capability is moving downhill a whole lot faster than our uh, defenses are moving uphill. Especially because there are groups and, and entities and individuals who these, who the terrorist organizations get subcontract out to, franchise, or just associated with, uh, who have much greater capabilities. I wonder if it also harbors uh, uh, the potential use of airstrikes for future CFAA violations. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would certainly uh, that would eliminate the uh, post-conviction uh, "I'm a martyr" uh, uh, press conferences. Uh, well, it would change it into some other type of uh, martyr. But, but, well, but Alan, it, it, you know, I, I know you're kind of poking at that, but it raises an interesting point, Stuart. You and I have talked about this. We have trouble defining the character of actions on the web. So you've got the president going in with, this, with the attack you just mentioned, Stuart, the right. North Koreans, calling it cyber vandalism. Yes. No, it's not spray painting a subway car. It's probably not war, but it's not that. And so you're right. The, the characterization here is we've got to advance that as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. The, 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 
the administration has struggled with the uh, uh, an effort to find some way to um, punish these intrusions without you know nuking people uh, and um, and and maybe JDAMs and the right uh, <laughs> circumstances are the right answer uh, um, so yes it's um, uh, it, it, it's going to be an evolving uh, problem and I think we are uh, you know frankly if if somebody had gone and killed a couple of uh, former military officers on the strength of this, uh, nobody would be weeping if we took the, this Kosovar out with a, uh, a, a smart can, can, I, can I just add one other editorial comment then? And no one would be weeping at our near-seeming global access to web activity around the planet, which... When our nation is in other moods, we seem to take great offense at. Well, and 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 we're ADD. Uh, we're man. We, we're capable of changing our mood within 15 minutes in the same news broadcast. Uh, uh, it's great that this guy got caught. Uh, and look, all of our communications are being intercepted <laughs> by NSA. It's yeah. shocking. Yeah, uh, it's too bad. Uh, uh, speaking of which, we're starting to see a little of this in the judiciary or, or everywhere. But, uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the magistrate's revolt has mm-hmm. Tossed up another couple of revolting magistrate decisions, uh, 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 this time on the All Writs Act and um, phone encryption. Uh, uh, can you tell us what this is and what its probability for actually meaning something is? Yeah, you know, the original magistrate revolt that we talked about last year involved uh, access to uh, cell site location data and, and some magistrates starting to require a warrant for that data, even though it was held by a third party, you know, i.e. a cell phone carrier. Uh, now you've got uh, James Orenstein, who's a magistrate in Brooklyn, uh, issuing a decision suggesting that um, the All Writs Act is not uh, usable to get a uh, to get Apple in this case or, or any other smartphone maker to locked decrypt a locked uh, smartphone, um, and that's in, partly in response to a decision from across the river by Judge uh, Magistrate Judge Gorenstein. So you've got Orenstein versus Gorenstein, Brooklyn versus Manhattan. Uh, uh, Gorenstein earlier had said that the All Writs Act was available, and the, the All Writs Act simply says that a, a court has the Ability to issue any writ in in aid of its jurisdiction, and so. And and if if I if I'm if I'm right, the, Michael, if I'm right, the, the the Supreme Court decided in the New York telephone case that you could order at least phone companies to uh, um, provide a whole bunch of um, access and assistance to the to the government in carrying out uh, its law enforcement uh, obligations. Yeah, and, and uh, Orenstein suggested that maybe that, that wasn't uh, that applicable to the situation here because their New York telephone company was a highly regulated utility, uh, whereas now Apple is, you know, a cutting-edge uh, tech firm uh, where the privacy of its users is, is really an important part of its business. And so... And, and 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 with more with more with more money, it's got more money in the bank than uh, uh, the net uh, GDP of ninety uh, percent of the countries in the world. Uh, uh, so it can't be that it's it's going to cost him too much to do. What? Why is he saying uh, I don't? I'm not going to issue this writ. Uh, what does he want to hear from them? Well, he, you know, he hasn't he hasn't decided it yet, but he's he invited Apple to submit a brief explaining why. Uh, Submitting to an, an order to unlock the phone would be unduly burdensome, but he essentially is telegraphing that 
he thinks Apple could make the case that when privacy is such an important part of its customers' interests, that simply responding would upset its business model. So it's not a matter of the cost of actually doing the decryption. It's upsetting its business model. So can I summarize that as Apple has its own policy on law enforcement, which is that law enforcement should lose, and the All Writs Act would require it to adopt a different policy, which is that law enforcement, when it has a probable cause, should be able to look at the phone. And he thinks that Apple's policy might trump the government's law enforcement interest, their interest in defeating law enforcement. I won't say that's a fair way to characterize it, but it is an apt way to characterize it, perhaps. But what's interesting is that this is a strange case to be planting the flag of privacy because it apparently involves an older model phone where Apple can fairly easily decrypt it. This is not one of the new phones where they said, you know, we're going to make this stuff so that we can't even unlock it if we want. That, to me, you would have a much stronger case. How can you force Apple to do something where it's going to have to reinvent the tech in order to do it? Here, if it really is easy for them to do it, it seems to me it's a pretty weak argument that he's trying to make. So my favorite side light on this is that they're already discovering one problem with these self-locking phones or phones that can only be unlocked by the owner, which is dead owners. If you die and your cell phone locks, which it almost certainly will, nobody's going to get into it. And if I had to guess, the people who are victimized by that fact outnumber by about 1,000 to 1 the number of people who will benefit from being able to keep the government out of their phone when their phone is seized. So we're making policy decisions that are going to be really bad for people who just want to know what the communications of their loved one were before they died. Yeah, I think people need to make sure they get the thumbprint before they bury the casket. Well, that probably is not that hard. Okay, this is interesting. The first time I've seen coverage of this, the insurance rates for cyber coverage are apparently really hopping this year up as much as 300 percent, certainly at least 33 percent, new limits, new deductibles. Alan, what do you make of this? Well, so it's interesting. It's an interesting question of whether this is really a hardening market for insurance or whether this is insurers adjusting prices to market forces or if this is still the market casting about for acceptable risk management thresholds. Don't you think it's a lot like Obamacare that people guessed at the pricing and then they got the experience and then they had to change the prices and not surprisingly most of them thought they had underguessed because if they didn't underguess, they were going to get priced out of the market. Well, I think that's right to a certain extent. You know, the $100 million coverage cap is pretty common for cyber insurance policies. Many insurers had put that cap on. What's different here is the increasing of the premium rates underneath that and also the deductibles that are being forced, especially on people who have suffered major breaches, which I don't know is the best way to think about the pricing problem. 
Right. Although it, 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 those guys, if you raise their rates, they're going to have trouble finding somebody else who will insure them. So maybe maybe that's the thinking. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you, uh, I, but it does raise the question, if you're not a retailer... I wonder if you wouldn't be better off self-insuring in this in this market. Uh, the likelihood you're going to have a, uh, m- a a really large uh, uh, event, more than 25 million, say, uh, uh, is uh, you know containable. Well, I think that's partially true. Um, I think you have to think about this in three ways. Number one is kind of retail and health insurance, where we're seeing these spikes uh, in right. premiums and the requirements for deductibles, industries that have been hit over and over again. And uh, you, you really need to be doing all the things that the insurance companies are going to expect you to do in those sectors. The second category, which the insurers seem to be really relatively confident in, financial services, uh, where much more has been done, much more sophisticated practices. In that third category, though, you have smaller companies that might not need this kind of coverage, but you also have industries that just haven't had this loss experience yet. Right. Um, and if you look at Target, $264 million in costs. Home Depot, $232 million in costs. That's not to say that that third category doesn't... Covered. Most of those costs weren't covered anyway. No. And that's, they were not a pocket. They were mostly you know, new uh, security measures, forensic costs. Uh, some of that stuff's not going to get covered. Exactly. But the question is for those larger industries that are in that third pocket of the unknown... Yep. Um, you know, who's, it's not to say that, uh, that those industries aren't looking at, at, at least those costs in future breaches. You, you would not have thought that, um, uh, you had to worry about, uh, casinos until, you know, uh, the, uh, Las, uh, Las Vegas Sands got, uh, uh, bricked. Um, I think it's also, just as a one last point on it, it it's really placing, and, and this is not a, a new insight, but it's placing the insurers and the reinsurers into a role of really driving what the acceptable mitigation practices are and the well, acceptable and cyber what, practices you, you, are. When you were DHS, this is what you prayed for, wasn't and it? Exactly. And from, <laughs> from, my, from my point of view, from my experience, you guys work out the commercial and legal angles of this. But from our point of view at the Chertoff Group, we love this for that very reason, Alan. It, it will raise the water level of American cybersecurity as people want to reduce their insurance rates, which is a far better way of doing this than government regulation chasing after technological advance. Right. Well, that, it, that is interesting, although I think, again, the the biggest driver of liability for cyber breaches for a long time was lost laptops at the airport, uh, and that drove encryption of hard drives uh, at rest uh, that did nothing about the real cyber threats we faced. It was it was about uh, preventing uh, breach notification notices from going out. Well, then that's the thing is that now what's driving the opportunity uh, for insurers to uh, to impose mitigation requirements is the fear. Of the breach, but it places the the impetus on the insurers and the reinsurers to choose wisely. Yeah, right. Uh, it's I'm sure it's 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 good. I think the government has consistently overestimated the value of reducing insurance uh, rates as a way of getting true cybersecurity. Yeah, uh, but I I could turn out to be wrong. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking about turning out to be wrong, uh, uh, the State Department is doubling down on error. Right? Uh, there's a story out in which what's obviously State Department sources leak that of nothing really is going to change in Wassenaar. We're not going to ask for anything. Uh, um, a, 
Alan, I, I saw other stories that suggested at least uh, at the Commerce Department they're saying don't believe anything you read in the paper about not and nothing changing. So is this just the end of an administration where all of the agencies are now at each other's throat, or is there a bigger lesson to be learned here? Well, it was an, it was an interesting entry into the spin room uh, by the State Department, really seeing, seeking to preempt you know, what could come out of the Commerce Department's efforts to consult with industry through its technical advisory committees. Uh, so, of course, this comment came um, right at the uh, right before the opening of the Commerce Department's first meeting of their technical advisory committees to to look at this issue. I think it's it's it may be less that all the agencies are in a scrum as much as it may be that the State Department may be taking in liberties. A scrum on all its own, yes. yes. <laughs> I, 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 and yeah, that does make sense. That they they clearly are on the. Uh, the less popular end of this, and they are probably shocked by the amount of hostile comment on their intrusion software uh, uh, law, uh, rule, um, and sense increasingly that that commentary has moved DHS, moved to the Commerce Department off of uh, support for it, uh, and so they are leaking in an effort to shore up their support. And it's, and it's, I think it's almost unfair to say that the State Department is a monolith on this. So you have all the other agencies going through the normal process. You have the State Department that's of several minds between the different bureaus involved in this. And, and so it, it, it cries out for a little bit of more discipline around what the U.S. government's position really is going to be. Well, we certainly, uh, discipline is what uh, the last year of an administration is noted for, right? Uh, uh, okay. Uh, and uh, uh, I guess I would also note that Citizen Lab put out a report on FinFisher, which suggests that uh, uh, the uh, uh, FinFisher is in, a, you know, three dozen countries, uh, many of them not particularly attractive from a human rights point of view. Uh, and uh, uh, that despite the fact that Europe has supposedly uh, implemented this uh, this rule two years ago, uh, which raises questions, which I'm sure the Commerce Department will be pursuing, about what the hell Europe, which got us into this fix, is actually doing to uh, prevent the uh, sales of precisely the kind of software they wanted to stop. Well, that's the question that's got to be asked at this point, which is in countries that have actually gone ahead and implemented this, how effective is it actually if we're still seeing these types of activities? And and so before the U.S. kind of commits to a particular position, I think it's important to kind of get the answers to those questions on the table. Well, thanks to Citizen Lab for uh, giving us such a timely report so that the state, the Commerce Department can ask about it. Uh, um, uh, I'm going to jump now uh, to the uh, last item on um, uh, the news uh, uh, roundup and the first that I'd like to invite uh, uh, Mike Hayden to jump in on, uh, <clears throat> and that is uh, uh, the uh, ECJ's decision about the uh, safe harbor and the determination the safe harbor uh, cannot stand, and largely because of U.S. government 702 access to European data when it's stored in the United States. Uh, first, uh, uh, Mike Vadis, uh, uh, we've gotten a new development in that. Uh, the uh, 
Article 29 Working Party, uh, which is all of the data protection authorities, got together and produced a uh, statement that is full of bolded text expressing their uh, uh, chagrin. It's sort of like Judge Leon's uh, uh, exclamation points. Uh, uh, And they clearly said something is going to wait until the end of January, and that's probably a signal that they're not going to aggressively pursue people who've been in the safe harbor until then. Uh, but they pretty clearly also were signaling that uh, uh, that's not really a guarantee against an investigation if they get a complaint. And uh, um, if you get to the end of January and you haven't found some other mechanism for ensuring the uh, compliance of your data transfer with uh, European law, you're in big trouble. And, and it's really a, a breathtaking statement. It's, it's, it's short, sweet, and mostly bold-faced, which it didn't really need to be. But the, what I found even more remarkable uh, than that is that they, they are plainly suggesting that they may decide at the end of January that even the alternative uh, mechanisms for transferring data to the U.S., such as model contract corporate or binding corporate rules, be adequate. Be not going to be adequate because the same have in the U.S. Um, in the U.S. of having inadequate uh, privacy laws in their view. So this, for the same reason that they say the ECJ found the safe harbor to be uh, uh, inadequate, uh, although I think that's a wrong reading of the decision, but uh, that's another story. They say that the same problem infects these other mechanisms because whatever, whatever a contract clause may say, if the U.S. government is able to get data in a way we don't like, um, then that transfer is illegitimate. So they're sending a clear threat that you know those uh, all data transfers to the U.S. may have to stop come January. Now there are data transfers to China. There are data transfers to Russia. Uh, we can be quite sure of that. Uh, but only the American companies transferring data to the United States uh, were suckered into putting their names on a public website so that they could be easily found and investigated. Uh, uh, does that mean that uh, uh, once again we'll see a unique European focus on the one country that has better protections on uh, uh, the civil rights of their, uh, the civil liberties of their citizens than Europe does? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And, you know, you can also uh, wonder why it is that transfers from, say, Belgium to France are okay when, when uh, you know, French intelligence authorities are able to get access to personal data with, with you know, uh, no court order, no court, no judicial oversight whatsoever. Yeah, so, well, I mean, the short answer is that if the Keneal tried to mess with DGSE, DGSE would uh, sit on them and then wiretap them, too. Uh, so they, they're afraid of DGSE, uh, but they're not afraid of us. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is truly remarkable. And, you know, apparently there, there is disagreement within the Article 29 Working Party. There, there are those who take a realistic view that, um, you know, the idea that we're suddenly going to forbid companies from transferring data to the U.S., unless they've got the consent of all the individuals involved, you know, it's just a ludicrous one. And then you've got the hardcore radicals who, who are willing to do just that and apparently prevailed enough to at least send the threat in this paper. Well, you know, the Article 29 Working Party, I've always thought it's like a, a collection of civil rights lobbies more than a government uh, a set of government agencies. And when you get a collection like that uh, together, the most radical position always prevails because uh, it's kind of the default. Uh, otherwise, you look like a sellout.
So, I, Mike, what are you hearing about uh, what companies are doing? You know, you could wait for the safe harbor negotiations, which are underway again. Uh, uh, you have until January. You could just sit and hope things worked out. Uh, or you could uh, jump into the model clauses or start getting consent, uh, do binding corporate rules. Uh, what's your usual advice to people? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing to do now is, is uh, definitely to move quickly to investigate one of the alternatives, even if even if they may be called into question in the future, because as of now, at least, the, the Article 29 uh, group said that they're okay. Um, so, And they also said, now that the safe harbor is done, if you're relying on the safe harbor, you are transferring data unlawfully, you know, no grace period. So it's definitely act. Companies need to act quickly to do, and I think many of them are doing just that. They're looking hard at this, and, and they're looking at it urgently. So one of the things that's interesting about this uh, is that uh, there is a safe harbor negotiation, and ironically, I think Europe's leverage declines every month as companies go out and find some other way to accommodate this. And if uh, if there isn't a deal announced by early January, uh, there's not going to be anybody left uh, doing uh, relying on safe harbor or hoping that the negotiations work out. And frankly, I wouldn't advise a company to expect the, the negotiations to work out. There's just too much uh, um, difficulty on both sides. No, that's a good, that's a good point about the leverage. Um, and this, you know... Th- this time of year, uh, expecting negotiations to get very far with the holidays, uh, with the, you know election season speeding up over here. It's just, it's. I think it's, it's a difficult time to expect anything really concrete to, to come out of those negotiations. So as far as the negotiations go, I I, I do have to ask Mike Hayden the um, the. ECJ's opinion was clearly aimed at Section 702 uh, and uh, uh, enforcement and restrictions on that and a requirement that it not be done in bulk, et cetera. Uh, and there's, there are arguments that it probably isn't that. Uh, uh, but uh, Tim Edgar uh, uh, had a piece in Lawfare saying, well, this is an opportunity to reform 702, to restrict what we do, uh, to give um, uh, foreigners some protection for their privacy, uh, uh, what should the U.S. position on 702 be? Well, let me first of all associate myself with the earlier remarks that this is European arrogance and hypocrisy of biblical proportions (laughs) in terms of of comparison between our safeguards uh, and theirs. The second point I made, uh, Bob Litt had a very authoritative and to-the-point op-ed in the Wall Street Journal the day before the, the court ruled, and he knew mm-hmm. what the ruling was going to be, pointing out that they were basing their ruling on fundamental errors of fact, that yep. what they said the United States was authorized to do was simply not true. Right? And so, I, I'm, you know, my going-in position is, oh, not we should start trimming our sails on, on something we absolutely have a right to do, collect foreign intelligence, uh, because of a court decision made on false data. Mm-hmm. And, Stuart, you know as well as I that 702 right now is the most productive SIGAD, yeah. SIGINT source, that the National Security Agency has. So how much of American safety, security, and liberty do you want to compromise in, in order to uh, make yourself consistent with the European Court of Justice? So I would not do it. You know, back in the days, about a year and a half ago now, 
Um, NSA was accused of sweeping up all the metadata in Spain and France. Mm -hmm. And, of course, our French and Spanish partners knew that was not true. But they wouldn't man up and and say what it was until finally Keith Alexander dimed them out in an open congressional session saying, that's not French and Spanish metadata, that's metadata given to us by France and Spain with regard to activity in, in a war zone, something apparently the services there did not want to, did not want to admit. I think there's a lot of stuff we know that we should simply begin to level the playing field when it comes to comparison. I mean, right now, NSA is viewed as the most predatory intelligence organization on the planet, when in reality, it is the most transparent and most regulated and overseen intelligence organization on the planet. And I think we should just begin to make those kinds of cases. You know, the State Department has for... 30 years now had a human rights report about every country in the world. Right. Maybe the ODNI should do an intelligence law and policy uh, study of every country on the planet uh, and compare them explicitly to yeah. our standards. Actually, the work has been done. <laughs> and, and so it's readily available. I was on Morning well, Joe. It would be a, would be a oh. real service to the Article 29 Working Party oh, as they're I, deciding yeah. whether transfers to uh, Belarus should yeah. be permitted. I, I was on Morning Joe. Uh, after the French passed their new surveillance law after Charlie Hebdo. And Scarborough says to me, well, well General, this, this this looks like the French Patriot Act. And I, I mean, I could hardly control my laughter. Right. Patriot Act. I, I said, Joe, this is something, this would never see the light of day even in a committee in the United States Congress. And it was passed at the speed of light. Uh, and, the and the Germans just just passed uh, data retention for like a third time. A mandatory. We, 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 in fact, in fact, we don't even rec- you know this, the 215 program and the and the USA Freedom Act. We're going to query the telephone companies now, but nowhere in the law does it even require them to keep the data a day. Right. And here you now have the Germans putting mandatory, lengthy requirements on their telecoms to keep data. Outsourcing Big Brother, that's, that's the German way, apparently. Uh, we'll get the... Uh, um, but I don't feel strongly about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, a couple of other things that I did want to talk about uh, uh, while we've got you here. Uh, um, you've been quoted, and I thought this was interesting, uh, as sort of raising at least a uh, yellow flag on the question of government access to encrypted communications, uh, uh, the topic on which Jim Comey yep. and uh, Sally Yates and others have uh, been uh, uh, quite eloquent, and then the um, administration recently dis- uh, in, in the least um, – surprising uh, interagency decision of the Obama administration decided that they weren't going to recommend. But it was still a Friday night release. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. They, they, they had three choices. They were all don't ask for legislation, but they managed to uh, uh, spend a, 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 a year on the decision. Um, but you've, you've come out saying, you know, maybe that is the right answer. And I, I wanted to hear sure. from you what your yeah. thinking was. First of all, I understand Jim Comey's point of view. And, and frankly, if I were the director of the FBI, I'd probably have that point of view, too. But, but that's revealing, Stuart, that I would say that this is far more of a law enforcement problem than it is a foreign intelligence problem. So I think, you know, truth in lending, I need to put those mm-hmm. cards face, face up on the table. Now, with that having been said, um, I think on balance, it, I come down against it on grounds of security. 
I, th- I, th- I think I can argue easily on grounds of privacy and grounds of commerce, but but I'm arguing on grounds on grounds of security. And here's here, here here's the rationale. By the way, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. There's another former director of NSA, Mike McConnell, who agrees with me, as does Mike. Chertoff, mm-hmm. former Secretary of Homeland Security. We arrived at this, by the way, independently, and we quite surprised one another <laughs> when we discovered we had all come to the same place. But here's here's the argument with regard to security. Number one is a hole is a hole. Mm-hmm. And, and if there's a weakness, that's a vulnerability. And I know what I would do as director of NSA if I knew there was at least a door. I'd spend an awful lot of time going going after that, going after that door. Uh, the, the second with regard to security, is that I think on balance now, American safety and security is better served with universally strong encryption than it is served with the ability to precisely access particular communications, particularly if it weakens overall strong encryption. And then finally, um, this would be a decision without effect. It would simply drive consumers to products produced in other countries, mm-hmm. denying us a home court advantage that would be useful in other respects. And then I'll add one final comment. What's good for the goose is also good for the Chinese. And with Baidu putting server farms here in the United States, how are you going to feel when the People's Republic, under their own law enforcement scheme, says, I want those Falun Gong guys' files right now? And if we go down this path, we really have no legal basis on on which to to argue against it. Now, uh, I've talked to Mike McConnell about this, and of course, Mike fell on a sword about clipper chip. Which, yes, which, he did. I was which, there. Which I looks was like, a lawyer for that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which, which which looks like phase one of 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 this of this story. And and Mike points out we didn't go dark. All right, we found right. ways around it. Now, the, the punchline, Stuart, that I really have to put into this because I, I go out of my way to tell this to, to kind of civil liberties audiences who are now about ready to carry me off on their shoulders after having said this. Uh, and I say, and you know how we got around it? Metadata yeah. <laughs> and bulk collection. Well, and hacking. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we're going to go do this, and I wouldn't – do the specific that Jim Comey wants, but we're still going to play aggressive ball in trying to penetrate communications that people are trying to hide from us, communications that would help us keep America free and safe. So interesting. I, I, uh, I, I, that those, those arguments have some force. Uh, they would also argue, I think, that uh, Kalia was wrong. Uh, that maybe, you know, if, if, if that's clearly a hole uh, that uh, uh, phone companies must open in their communication systems in order to allow a wiretap if they get an order. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that we feel that way because, in general, these are not about providing some super secret, super mechanical mechanism. What the companies usually do is they say, we're going to create a situation in which we can get access, and then we will get access on behalf of government if we get an order. It is true that that exposes them to getting an order from China, Uh, and not all of them will do what Google did, which is to say, you know, uh, take your order and shove it. We're leaving yeah. China. Uh, in fact, none of them will do that. Maybe not even Google in the long run. Um, uh, but uh, um, you know, when company, we already trust companies. We have to trust companies uh, that they have good security. This is just one more area where we have to keep 
track of their security or trust in their security. Uh, I'm not sure that um, uh, say, saying to a company, yeah, you can have as many security holes as you want in new products and still introduce them and we'll say nothing about it, but we are not going to ask you to introduce a, t- a, a new feature. Direct them, they would have a security. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a, you know, I, I, I fought in that war. I tell people I feel a little like... Uh, a World War One veteran when he discovered sometime around 1938-39 that he was just going to be uh, a veteran of World War One, <laughs> I, 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 and that the real Great War was still to come. Uh, we we probably do have a Great War. Can, to can come I on. can I can I give you a thought? Yeah. All right. This is this is called the equities decision, yes, and, yes. And, and and you know that, and it goes all the way back to 1952 when NSA was formed, and we've always taken it seriously. And and for those not familiar with it, it's everything is built around vulnerability. Both offense and defense pivots around the concept of vulnerability. And the question becomes, when, when you have a vulnerability, either discovered or created, all right, you, you then have to say, what do I want to do? Do I want to play offense with the vulnerability, or do I want to play defense? Do I want to patch it, right. or do I want to exploit it? And I, I fear... Even though that's been handled in a most serious manner for the for the entire life of NSA, we have we have beaten down pass in the forest in terms of how we make that decision. In a world in which encryption was not universal, universally available, universally used, by and large was used by several targeted entities, mm-hmm. and and may and maybe we unknowingly have tilted the playing field a little bit in the direction of exploitation at the expense of defense. I'm, I'm, I'm quite willing to entertain that hypothesis. It's possible. I think yeah. that's right. It, it, because what you could get from it is much more immediate and obvious than right. what you would lose if you didn't. Exactly. exactly. Um, no, I think that's probably right. Well, that, that kind of raises, uh, and I won't ask you to comment on the accuracy of this, uh, but there are papers recently that have said uh, NSA has the ability to break large chunks of encrypted communication, commercial communication, by breaking Diffie-Hellman primes. Uh, and, and if I understand the paper, it is essentially saying that because there is a repetition of primes, uh, um, if you if you could actually figure out what one prime is, you'd get access to 10 or 20% of the encrypted communications on the Internet. And to do that would require special purpose uh, uh Cryptanalytic uh, uh, tools, hundreds, you know, two hundred or million dollars or more in a year, and at the end of it, you'd have one key, but that that one key might might open up the door to uh, uh, ten or twenty percent of uh, internet uh, communications, um, and the. Of course, the headlines are NSA is breaking all these communications, and maybe true. Uh, but the reason they picked NSA is they thought, well, that's one agency that we think probably has the budget to do this. <laughs> I, I'm guessing there's a couple more yeah. that, that have the budget to do that. Uh, uh, is that the kind of situation where you ought to say, where we should be saying more frequently, you know, um, it's a great thing to do, uh, but we're better off fixing that hole than exploiting it? I I feel less strongly about that mm-hmm. than I do about the position where we can't direct Apple at all to build a gateway right. for us. All right, uh, I have actually had a conversation with American industry you know, on, on this, and they, were, they felt pretty good that 
people like McConnell and Chertoff were saying, no, we think that's too big an ask. That, that's an unfair one. But then I tell the story, you know, after I, if I were still in government, and after I would call Jim Comey and say, hey, hey, big guy, I'm not with you on this one, mm-hmm. all right, and, and hung up the phone, the next thing I would do would be swing around, grab my other phone and call OMB and say, I'm going to need about $300 million more million for computers. Yeah. Because there's a difference between requiring a company to provide you an accommodation and just going out and trying to break code. And and frankly, I would go out and try to break code, and I would spend a lot of money to go do it. Otherwise, you are creating a safe haven for, for people who would will us harm. I, I mean, I, I think especially when you're talking about this, this kind of fragile capability or even hacking, uh, it's the difference between having a stairway up El Capitan yeah. and climbing it uh, with the little nubs and toeholds and knee holds that yeah. uh, that they they climb it. They can probably get higher faster just climbing straight up. <laughs> but you know, on the whole, I'd rather be on the staircase. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> uh, uh, what we're doing is saying, okay. We'll try, you know, the direct route uh, uh, off rope, uh, uh, and as long as we're better, faster, stronger than everybody else, that's an advantage. But, but, but you know, all intelligence, but it's, you know this, Stuart, particularly signals intelligence, all advantage is transient. Yes, you never have permanent uh, access, and it, it always, every every loss is deeply felt. <laughs> Uh, Until the next morning and say, move on. Yes, no, it's, it's true. Uh, I, and, uh, uh, I am quite confident that uh, people are reading those stories and saying, what can we do next? Right. Uh, if they are breaking it or, or how can we scare the hell out of uh, people away from tech, uh, crypto? We can't break by using this story. So that's, uh, uh, that's great. Uh, I, a couple of other things, uh, that I thought would be fun to talk about. Uh, um, I noticed a story the other day uh, that said, uh, I listened to Snowden give an interview to the BBC. The BBC, pretty hard-nosed interview, as, as the Brits are much harder on Gus Taylor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he said, uh, so how are you living uh, here in Russia uh, I, after kind of uh, dinging him on Russia's human rights record? Uh, and... Uh, Obviously, Snowden couldn't say I'm getting money from, you know, uh, a job that uh, Putin got me. Uh, he said, I brought a lot of money with me. Uh, his lawyer has said, uh, one of his 600 lawyers, has said he's getting speaking fees uh, and uh, up to $10,000 a pop. And that led me to, to think, God, he's getting speaking fees to show up at uh, U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. events, you know, virtually. Uh, um, and that raised the question, why hasn't the Justice Department sued him civilly to make sure that uh, when he gives a speech, he can't collect the money, that it instead goes to uh, uh, as as compensation to the U.S. government, uh, just like anybody who writes a book that, that reveals CIA secrets finds all of his royalties um, uh, uh, cabined by, uh, by a lawsuit? Well, you're right. I think it would almost have to be confined to the content of the speech. You know, you've got oh, he, he, only if he talks about secrets that he's in 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 the speech itself. Because we're talking about a business transaction, we're talking about oh, but, him no, not profit. I, I understand. People want him. To, we're, we're talking about. <laughs> hey, you're the lawyer. Okay. I'm not talking about what's right. I'm talking about what's legally possible. All right. And 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 so I I I, I do think. By by the way, 
if he were to do that, mm -hmm. that would mean he was selling secrets. Right, which would, would <laughs> certainly be put a whole new, a whole whole new flavor yes. on, on some of the things he's claiming, claiming right. to be. By the way, I think he's done that already. When you, know, when you look at his behavior in Hong Kong, all right, he needs the Chinese to give him a hall pass, almost literally. Yes. And he tells the South China Morning Post, you know, you know we're breaking into your computers. Yes. And then he desperately needs to go somewhere. And then he has Glenn Greenwald announce that the United States and the United Kingdom are intercepting Dmitry Medvedev's satellite phone while he's at the G20. I mean, he's buying passage. He, he has, uh, my memory is he, he did that with the Brazilians as well, yeah. and maybe the Germans, offered to tell them more right. about uh, the uh, um, uh, NSA's operations against them if they would just give yeah. him uh, some kind you of... You know, I got another gloss on yeah. this too, all right? I know why they did it, but when I saw that South by Southwest allowed him to virtually parachute into their big right. to-do down in Austin and then be interviewed by his lawyer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm just naturally offended by the mechanics there. It's, it, it's amazing. The only, the only hard-hitting, uh, truly hard-hitting uh, um, interview he's gotten came from a comedian. It was John <laughs> Oliver, it was. Uh, who actually did ask him tough questions, yeah. uh, to which he didn't have good answers. Uh, uh, almost everybody else has been... Well, I think uh, the BBC reporter said it took him months and months of negotiation to get the interview. Uh, and I'm sure some of that negotiation was about what his take was going to be, uh, you know, what, what uh, his slant was going to be on the uh, questions. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, I, another topic that I thought was interesting is the UK, which has, as I said, been much uh, less enthusiastic about Snowden and more uh, protective of GCHQ, um, had a story saying that uh, uh, Prime Minister Wilson, uh, you know, who was Prime Minister when I was in high school, uh, promised that uh, GCHQ would not intercept the communications of uh, members of Parliament. And several members of Parliament uh, uh, went to the spy tribunal and said, oh, my God, we think that all of these bulk uh, collection systems are a violation of uh, uh, Prime Minister Wilson's promise to me when I was in high school. Uh, and uh, uh, the tribunal said, uh, oh, yeah, that, that promise doesn't work when we're doing uh, bulk uh, collection. Your stuff's in there with everybody else. Uh, suck it up. Uh, and I thought what was interesting was the, the parallels to the U.S. Congress uh, uh, concern that maybe their communications yeah. have been intercepted. Yeah, and, and, and the comparison there roughly is whether or not congressional phone records have, have been brought into NSA access by the 215 program. And the answer to that is hell yeah. It's all I mean, you can't you can't possibly it can't possibly not be included in that. But kind of reflecting the, the British court approach, there is no other way of doing it. And therefore one would have to conclude it, it it's not unreasonable to use the the magic word uh, right. in the in the Fourth Amendment. A far but by the way though Stuart, what you then have are headlines claiming NSA collecting on American Congress, and then it's only a short jump to NSA targeting congressmen, right. and, and so on, when, when in reality you simply have access to, to these these Well, you, you, you have collected them. You, you don't have access right. without going through uh, right, 600. Right, right. They're, they're, they're available, and, and, and then they're only touched with the trigger of a reasonable, articulable suspicion that they're 
in contact with the phone number that's been affiliated with global terrorism. If there's anything that bothers me about the the way this whole thing has unfolded, and I'll close up with this and let you respond, it's uh, that um, the assumption in 1978 when we passed FISA was everybody agreed that given the stakes, um, anything we could do to gather intelligence on our adversaries abroad was something we should do. If it worked, we had to do it uh, because we had so few ways of knowing what people were thinking and doing in a dangerous world uh, that we had to do whatever we could do. And then the purpose of the law was to make sure that all that uh, creative energy didn't go into spying on Americans uh, I, and uh, uh, to en- ensure some oversight about what we were doing. Uh, now, the enthusiasm for bringing the law to this uh, has a kind of, well, it doesn't matter you know, what you need. The question is what the Fourth Amendment is going to let you do. And if there's a difference between those two, you're just out of luck. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's really sad as though, you know, NSA is out of luck as opposed to the country yeah. and its inhabitants are out of luck. Uh, and I wonder whether this is, this is the sea change that's really going to bring uh, law and, and intelligence yeah. into, into it, conflict. It is. And when, I, when I'm in front of public audiences, in fact, I was down at CPAC, a mm-hmm. conservative political action group, and um, I was debating Judge Andy Napolitano, the right. Fox News judge, and he he let off with about eight minutes of libertarian <laughs> whatever venom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I get up and said, Judge Napolitano is an unrelenting libertarian. Huzzah! The crowd. And then I said, and so am I. To not the same reaction. <laughs> and it, and, but then after the booing died down, and I said, but I have been duty bound to pay attention to the entire document, including the part that says provide for the common defense. Right? And that, that reasonableness word there, you know, it, it doesn't protect us against all search and seizure. It protects us against unreasonable search and seizure. And Stuart, I never tire of trying to tell audiences that reasonableness is the product of prudence judging the totality of circumstances in which you find yourself at the moment. And so reasonable in one day may not be the same measure at another day. But it but it's beyond it's beyond what is reasonable, Stuart. I think I think the tectonic here is not whether NSA can or can't have your phone bills. It's it's how we arrive at that decision and, and you I think we're making reference to it a minute ago. Coming out of Church Pike, the grand deal was we're going to take something that had been exclusively the province of the executive espionage, and by the way, is still the province of the executive and most other functioning democracies. Right. Taking something that was the totality under the control of the executive and share it, share its oversight with the other political branch. Now, you can't tell 535, so the solution was we're going to tell two select committees. And, oh, by the way, for, for certain relatively more sensitive cases, we're going to bring the American court system into this, too, which is incredibly unusual. Right. And the odd thing about the FISA court is not that it's secret. It's that it exists. Right. Nobody else has one. And so NSA is chugging along with 215 saying, we're just good to go. This is authorized by the president, legislated by Congress, overseen by the courts. This is the Madisonian trifecta. We're home free. And what was really striking that a bunch of Americans, and not all of them had tinfoil on their heads, uh, a bunch of Americans said, "Eh, I'm not sure that constitutes consent of the governed now. Maybe that's consent of the governors. You certainly told them, but you didn't tell me. 
And that, I think, is the big deal. It's not where the line is. You know, we'll argue over that. It's how we decide where the line ought to be. And that's the one that's shifting. And the punchline there is covert action and plebiscite are tough to get into the same thought. Right. And so now how do we go Truly forward? covert action. Yes. I mean, we've had plebiscites yeah. on drones and yeah. they're still covert action. But, but. So how do we do this going forward? How do we make decisions publicly enough to give them legitimacy, but not so public that it actually makes it no sense doing that stuff in the first place? So that's, uh, that, that's, I guess, um, uh, Edward Snowden's contribution to, uh, uh, the legitimacy of our intelligence operations. We know an awful lot about them, and the only one we've decided to, uh, Isn't that amazing? is 215. Yeah, I mean, all of those revelations, and, and so far, that other than some voluntary restraints that will not stand the test of time that the president has put on with regard to foreign leaders and such, and retention of some things, beyond that, all we have done is taken metadata and say, you guys in the phone company keep it, but we'll call you if we want to use it. All right. Well, on that note, we'll close up. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael Hayden. Uh, also, Michael Vadis, uh, Alan Cohn, uh, thanks very much. Uh, uh, we continue to be open to feedback, uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, or leave a message by phone, 202 862 5785. This has been episode 85 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Mikko Hipponen of F-Secure, Ari Schwartz, former senior director of cybersecurity on the NSC staff at the White House, uh, uh, by Adam Cozy uh, from CrowdStrike, who will be talking about uh, the great canon, and by Mark Shuttleworth, founder of Canonical. Uh, that's Ubuntu for those of you who are Linux users. Uh, We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.